Amen, don't you love those lyrics? Let us wonder grace and justice, join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. Amen. What a glorious reality to sing of the gospel of Jesus Christ together. Let me invite you to take your copy of God once more this evening and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. This evening we are in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Hear now the word, the living God. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is the word of the living God, and we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Now, living Lord, we pray that you would incline our hearts to hear, guard us and guide us, help us to be instructed once more in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, in our section of scripture, touches on, proclaims, glories in a variety of truths. For in it, we have a discussion of the reality of the reigning Christ. But we also have for us words related to Christ's ascension that speak to the church and words that remind us that we are a people equipped, a people furnished, that we're not left alone. One of the phrases that is used in this passage of Scripture is the phrase ministry. What does Paul mean when he uses the word ministry in Ephesians chapter 4? I want us to consider or perhaps reconsider this phrase. What is the ministry? How is it that it's connected to Christ and Him reigning? This evening, I want us to see three things in our text. And the first is just that, the reigning Christ. The reigning Christ. Notice how Paul begins. 
He's in that section of scripture where Paul has moved from theological discussion to how that theology intersects with the believer, with the church. That's often what Paul will do. Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3 is a bold proclamation of the gospel, of God's work in predestination. Who can forget Ephesians chapter 2? Our resume as sinners put out for all the world to see. There it is. You were dead. And the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, who is at work among the sons of disobedience, who were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But then in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, those two glorious English words, but God, who is rich in mercy. The discussion of the gospel then carries Paul into praise for the family of God in Ephesians chapter 3. And then he says this, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Christ gifts his church. And this gift, these spiritual gifts, have to do with the fact that he is reigning even now. That's the first thing that we'll see tonight, the reigning or a reigning Christ. This section in verses 7 or 8 and 9 presents the church as a body with gifts through the grace of Christ. Look at verse 7. Every believer is impacted by the grace of Christ in order to serve. But to each one, each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. But then, interestingly enough, this discussion of the grace of gifts for believers is met with verse 8. Therefore, he says, and then Paul quotes from Psalm 68, 18. We read it just a moment ago. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Paul quotes from Psalm 68, 18, where David, in the psalm, sings to God in celebration of God's victories. Now ultimately, this psalm was going to find its final and ultimate end in the work of Christ. But David, in Psalm 68, points to God's victory over enemies. Here, how does this connect in the mind of Paul? How does this connect by the Holy Spirit to gifts? Now Paul applies Psalm 68, verse 18 to Christ. And he says this, When he, that is Christ, ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Several months back, our brother Blake preached a sermon, commend it to you, on the ascension of Christ. It's a doctrine that we often neglect. We won't dive into all the ins and outs of the ascension, but here the victorious Christ is pictured as having ascended. And it's his ascension that secures for him an exaltation where he is reigning. He ascended on high. He led captivity captive. And what did he do? He gave gifts to men. The reigning Christ has victory spoils, as it were. Boys and girls, A long time ago, it was common, perhaps in some parts of the world today, for various people who were fighting wars or fighting battles to fight, and when one person would win or one team would win, they would oftentimes 
steal. They would take from the other group. And they would bring those possessions home to their own people. And those were called victory spoils. They not only defeated the enemy, but upon their return, they brought back gifts. Now, Christ didn't steal anything. And he certainly didn't get gifts from the enemy. But we have a picture here of a reigning Christ who gifts his church. John Calvin, speaking on this, says this, quote, The noblest triumph which God ever gained was when Christ, after subduing sin, conquering death, and putting Satan to flight, rose majestically to heaven that he might exercise his glorious reign over the church, end quote. We often think of the crucifixion and death of Christ, the burial of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, but his exalted status as the ascended one who is currently reigning over his church is something that we ought not forget. And Paul connects the gifts of the church down to this very day with the fact that these gifts come from a reigning Christ. Your spiritual gifts, whatever they may be, are the result of King Jesus handing out spoils of victory to his people. We also need not forget that Christ is reigning even now over his church. Oh, there is coming a great day when we will see the victory of Christ with our eyes. All the world will see it. All mouths will be stopped and every knee will bow. But we need not wait for that day to affirm that Christ is reigning now. He is king now. And he's ascended on high. Now, notice what Paul says in verse 9. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? This could be Christ's first coming to the earth. This passage could also include parts of what we saw in 1 Peter as it relates to the full descent of Christ. We will not parse this tonight. But we're speaking of Christ who, verse 10 says, He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So we have a reigning Christ, but secondly, we have a gifted church. A gifted church. Notice in verses 8 through 10, There's the indication that after Christ had descended to earth, he ascended to the Father and he gave gifts to believers. That's what the text says. Taking up the celebration of David in Psalm 68 and pointing it ultimately to the greatest victory of God in Christ, the ascended one who rules and reigns has given gifts to his church. These are victory spoils, if you will. Notice the connection. He led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. He's conquered and he's giving gifts. That's the idea. This speaks then to the reality that each of us, verse 7, have by his grace gifts. But notice what he says in verse 11. A further giving is described here. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Part of the victory spoils of Christ's work, part of the gifting of Christ is that he's given to his church apostles and prophets and evangelists. And after them, pastors and teachers. 
Now make no mistake, all of these men are men who are sinners in need of a savior. They are not gifts in and of themselves, but rather Christ in his victory is reigning and feeding his sheep through these officers. But who are these officers? Who are the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists? Again, John Calvin commenting here says this, the government of the church by the ministry of the word is not a contravince of men, but an appointment made by the Son of God. As his own unalterable law, it demands our assent. They who reject or despise this ministry offer insult and rebellion to Christ, its author. It is he himself who gave them, for if he does not raise them up, there will be none. Another inference is that no man will be fit or qualified for so, or for so distinguished an office who has not been formed and molded by the hand of Christ himself. To Christ we owe it that we have ministers of the gospel, that they abound in necessary qualifications, that they execute the trust committed to them. All, all is his gift. End quote. I was recently privileged to preach at the installation service of one of our brothers who used to be here in this church and has moved and has taken up a pastorate. And it's easier to say this about other people's pastors than to say to you what I'm about to say of this other person. But in essence, I told this church, do you know that the living Christ has given this church gifts? Do you know that one of his gifts is this man that God has brought to you? This pastor, teacher, now these aren't the direct words that I said, somewhere along the way in that weekend, I was encouraging them to consider the fact that this pastor is a gift. This isn't meant to make this man or any man full of pride. We just spoke of humility this morning. But think about what is happening. Christ, who is reigning, who is ascended, who is exalted on high, has given gifts to all people, and part of the gifting that he's given to his church as the conquering king is that there are apostles and prophets and evangelists and after them, pastors and teachers who lay the foundation for and then continue to proclaim the foundation of the work of the gospel. Christ has gifted his church. Now, who are these officers here? Part of the gifts other passages of Scripture define certain spiritual gifts. But here in verse 11, we read this description of officers. Who are they? I would submit to you that there are two categories of offices here. And these two next words are not original with me. Many of the Reformers, Puritan authors, would say these two categories are extraordinary and ordinary. <laughs> extraordinary and ordinary. The extraordinary category of office are those who had a special calling, who had special giftings and power, oftentimes accompanied with miraculous signs and gifts. These would be the apostles, prophets, and evangelists. But you may say, well, don't we have evangelists today? Let's talk about that. Hopefully we have those evangelizing today. But who are these evangelists? Boys and girls, the apostles were those who saw the risen Christ with their own eyes. They were commissioned by Christ to go and 
proclaim his resurrection, to lay the foundation of the church. The prophets were those who had a special gifting alongside the apostles to give the words of revelation to the new church. But what about the evangelists? The evangelists were those who worked alongside the apostles, who had a particular gifting. Now, I don't normally stand up here and read a smattering of quotes to you, but I'd like to do that this evening to help us to consider what the office of an evangelist is. Evangelists. John Calvin. To this class belong Timothy and others. For while Paul mentions them along with himself in the salutations of his epistles, he does not speak of them as his uh, companions in the apostleship, but claims this name as peculiarly his own. The services in which the Lord employed them were auxiliary to those of the apostles, to whom they were next in rank. It deserves attention also that of the five offices which are here enumerated, not more than the last two are intended to be perpetual. Matthew Henry. The evangelists were ordained persons, 2 Timothy 1.6, whom the apostles took for their companions in travel, Galatians 2.1, and sent them out to settle and establish such churches as the apostles themselves had planted, Acts 19.22. And, not being fixed to any particular place, they were to continue till recalled, 2 Timothy 4.9. The Geneva Bible study notes, that first Bible of the Reformation with study notes, Notes that evangelists were temporary in nature and were a part of the, quote, extraordinary group. John Owen, the Puritan, renders evangelists as part of the extraordinary group. Matthew Poole, the Puritan, quote, evangelists, these were likewise extraordinary officers, for the most part chosen by the apostles as their companions and assistants in preaching the word, planting churches in the several places where they traveled. Such were Timothy, Titus, Apollos, Silas, etc. <laughs> John Gill, the 1700s particular Baptist, quote, they were below the apostles and yet above pastors and teachers. They were the companions of the apostles and assistants to them and subserved them in their work. Interestingly enough, if you remember in one of Paul's letters to Timothy, what does he tell him to do? Do the work of an evangelist. Over and over and over and over again, we see among brothers of our particular tradition and our understanding of the scriptures to say that there were extraordinary offices, offices which have ceased Offices upon which the word of Christ went forth, upon which the foundation of the church alongside the message of the apostles was laid, but that there are to this day pastors and teachers. I will make this clear by the end, but this does not mean that we don't have people evangelizing. We should have people evangelizing, witnessing. It's just that in Paul's mind in Ephesians 4, 11, these offices, gifts to the church, had a particular order, and there were two types. Extraordinary gifting to lay the foundation as the gospel moves out quickly in the first and early second centuries. 
And then offices, which the text says by the grace of Christ are gifts to the church. Men, feeble men who continued to pastor and teach the church built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. This is important for us only insofar as we need to answer the question, when I read my Bible, who were the evangelists? Well, those were the assistants of the apostles. Those were people with particular giftings during that time. Well, who's going to preach Christ today? Well, hopefully every pastor, every Lord's Day. Hopefully Monday through Saturday, you and me in the streets and marketplace of our lives. But that work is different than the office of an evangelist in Ephesians 4, 11. We have a reigning Christ who didn't leave his church alone. Do you remember the many times that he tried to comfort his disciples and said to them, I'm going to send you the helper? But in addition to that, we see that the ascended Christ has given the foundation-laying office to his church, his apostles, has given his word and the assistance of this word through prophets and evangelists. And even down to this day, some 2,000 years later, he's given to the church pastors and teachers to shepherd and train the people. A reigning Christ. You know, many times we talk about the end times. And if you press me over a cup of coffee, I'll look at you and I'll say, yeah, I, I think Christ is ruling and reigning now. And, and we might say, well, we can differ on, you know, the millennium and all those kinds of things, but, you know, we'll, it'll all come out in the end. And in one sense, that's true. But in another sense, when we say Christ is reigning now, in part we mean the reigning Christ is the one who gifts his church. Every last one of us, and part, not in full, but part of that gifting is that his voice is continuing down through the ages in his church as the inscripturated word is proclaimed. The word that the Spirit inspired the apostles to give. A reigning Christ and a gifted church. But thirdly, I want you to notice a furnished people. A furnished people. Boys and girls, we use that word furnished particularly in this way. Let's say your family buys an apartment or a townhouse or a new house and you move into it. When you move in, it's a wonderful gift of God, isn't it? But it's not furnished. There's no furniture. There's no couches. There are no beds. There's no kitchen table until your family either moves in and brings with you all the stuff, all the furniture that you had from your previous house, or you go and buy furniture. Well, Christ furnishes his church. He doesn't leave it empty. Notice what is said next in verse 12. Verse 11 gives us these officers, two sets, extraordinary and ordinary. But look at verse 12. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. We have several English teachers in our church. One of the things that I am helpful, helpfully encouraged by my own English teachers down through the ages is the lesson that I learned that commas are important. You know what a comma is? 
it helps us to consider how to put a thought together. Now, maybe you picked up on the fact that in this reading, I read it as if there was a comma when there's no comma. Let me read it to you, verse 12. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and pastors and teachers, what are they for? They're for the equipping of the saints. Now, Pastor Ryan has been reading that phrase as if there's a comma there, but there's no comma, is there? At least not in the New King James Version or the New American Standard Version or the NIV or the ESV or any of the other V's and B's out there printed in the last, say, 60 years. But I'm reading it as if there's a comma because I think that's exactly where a comma should be. I don't think that what Paul is saying is that these officers equip the saints for the work of the ministry, but rather these officers equip the saints. They do the work of the ministry and they edify the body of Christ. Let's talk about this. In modern day minds, there are two purposes for these offices. However, there's an older view. And this older view divides this list into three, not two. Again, number one, equipping of the saints. Number two, for the work of the ministry. We'll talk about that. There is the ministry and then there's ministry to each other. Number three, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So for instance, in the old Geneva Bible, it would be read this way. For the repairing of the saints, comma, for the work of the ministry, comma, and for the edification of the body. The King James Version, for the perfecting of the saints, comma, for the work of the ministry, comma, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Or how about the American Standard Version of 1901? For the perfecting of the saints, comma, unto the work of ministering, comma, unto the building up of the body of Christ. It could actually be argued, and I think it's the better argument, that the grammatical construction of the Greek language is better translated with the comma. Now, our faith doesn't rest upon fallible men, but just so you know that I'm not standing alone, this was the view of the early church father and golden-tongued preacher, John Chrysostom, as well as several other church fathers. This was the view of reformers like John Calvin, John Owen, the Scottish Covenanter David Dixon, John Gill, Martin Lloyd-Jones. And it's the view of modern-day scholars like Michael Horton and Richard Barcelos. What difference does this make, though? Well, we, we, we get the idea that Christ is reigning over his church. We get the idea that he has gifted his church and he's furnished us. Why does it matter if we look at 2 verses 3? Well, let's look at these three tasks. Let's assume for just a moment that they are three, that there's a comma there. Number one, then, for the equipping of the saints. This word, equipping, as a term for the underlying Greek word, didn't really come into play until the mid-20th century. Until up to that point, the word was translated, bringing together. Repairing, bringing to order, perfecting. Elsewhere in Scripture, this word means repairing or mending, making complete. You see it, for instance, in Matthew 4.29, where there is a mending of nets. The equipping of the saints here is the bringing to order of the body of Christ. 
It's the perfecting of the body of Christ. This text is saying that the reigning Christ has sent apostles and prophets and evangelists and then ordinary officers like pastors and teachers for the work of bringing to order the body of Christ, perfecting the body of Christ such that the equipping that is discussed here is not really trying to get them to do the ministry, but bringing them to order. But then look at the second phrase, for the work of the ministry. John Owen, in one of his writings, makes the argument that the phrase here, work of the ministry, is particularly the administration of the word and sacraments. That is, the ministry. That's so simple. Isn't there more to the ministry than the administration of the word and sacraments? Well, there's plenty of ministering among us to be done. We'll see that in a moment when we get to verses 15 and 16. But here what we see is that the reigning Christ has gifted his church. Part of the gift is the officers who are to bring to order the saints and to do what? Make sure that Christ's word is preached and seen invisible signs. That the church prays and is brought to discipline. What are the three tasks? The equipping of the saints or the bringing to order of the saints. The work of the ministry. And thirdly, for the edifying of the body of Christ. This is building up the church. That's what this is. To edify, boys and girls, is to build up. Many of the ancients would say that part of the work of the risen Christ and gifting his church with these five offices is that his church would be brought to order, that in the midst of her there would be word and sacrament, and that the church would be edified and built up. This, of course, causes us to ask the question, But the saints, in verse 7, have gifts. Are we saying that there are no gifts that help the body? If the pastors do, if the teachers do, the ministry? I'm so glad you asked. Look at the next few phrases. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Notice, we need the ministry of word and sacrament so that we don't fall into error. Notice what he says next. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. What is it that I'm to do? I'm not an apostle, prophet, evangelist, and I'm not a pastor or teacher. What am I to do? Speak the truth in love. Work in love for the maturity of the saints in your midst. Every one of us, according to the measure of the gifts of Christ, has a part in this, but it flows what? Out of the ministry, which is the word and sacrament. That's where it flows. It's instructed, it's taught, so that we can speak, that we can encourage, 
And we're not led astray by every wind of doctrine and the trickery of men. Receiving the work of the gifted men that Christ gives to the church, the church then grows into maturity and its members in turn grow in speaking the truth in love. And this is all a part of Paul's larger larger context, which we didn't read. But what does he say as he opens chapter 4? I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling to which you were called. So I think the furnishing here in this particular text is best understood as Christ giving his word through these offices, some of which have ceased, so that the body is brought to order, that the sacraments and word is proclaimed in its midst and then is edified so that we all can speak the truth in love. So how do we apply this? Is it just a debate over commas? How do we apply this? Well, several things as we close. Number one, Christ presently reigns over his church. Just take us back to that tonight. Do you regularly remember, brothers and sisters, that Christ is reigning even now over his church? That he stands in our midst, as the book of Revelation reminds us. That he is the worship leader, as Hebrews 2 reminds us. That he gives his word, and that through this word we are edified so that we may all use these gifts. But a second application is this. The main way Christ provides for and grows his church is through the word coming from men Christ gives to his church. Notice, we didn't say the only way, but we said the main way. This is the main way that Christ grows his church. He provides men, fallible men, through whom his infallible word is proclaimed. And this is the main way that Christ grows his church. This is the ordinary way. A third application for us is this. The ministry of the church is to... Now, if you were to get on social media, if you were to get on various church Facebook groups, and just type that in. Hey, everybody, I want us to do a Facebook poll wouldn't advise it. (laughs) Fill in the blank. The ministry of the church is, what responses might you get? Well, you would get a whole host of things. But you might be considered rather old-fashioned and quite frankly boring if you said, the ministry of the church is the administration of the word and the ordinances. Everybody has a desire for what the church is to be, but nobody wants to proclaim that the church's chief goal is the preaching of the word and the administration of the ordinances. Thus, we could say the Christian's first task is not to do the ministry, but to receive the ministry and then go and serve. And that doesn't sell today. I mean, how many of us have been to churches where a phrase, and, and, and it's, it's, it's meant so well, but a phrase like this, every member is a minister. No. <laughs> no. Every member is not a minister. 
Hopefully every member is doing serving and or ministry. But there is an order to Christ's church. We are to receive the ministry of Christ's word through this order and then go and serve. And the beauty of this, brothers and sisters, is that we're not all equipped in the same way. Some of you have gifts that others of us don't have. And those gifts are honed through the ministry that Christ gives his church. Richard Barcelos, a modern-day writer, talking about this passage, says this, quote, The passage has more to do with what the saints become than what the saints do. End quote. But a last application for us, and that is this. Evangelism is not now an office, but a task for us all. Some of you might have been sitting there going, I think I follow you, but I'm afraid that the application is that you're going to tell us that no one needs to evangelize. (laughs) Quite the opposite. We need not look for a particular evangelist office. The pastors and teachers teach We go out into the world, to the marketplace, to the schools, to the workplace. And we simply talk about Christ. We need not wait for a special gifting or calling to an office. Some of us hand out tracts. Some of us build relationships with neighbors. Some of us have intentional Thanksgiving and other holiday meals so that we can speak of Christ to our family That's what we're all called to do. We don't have to wait for a particular calling that says, well, there were apostles and prophets and I know they're done and I'm not a pastor or teacher. I don't think I've been called to be an evangelist. No, you're not called to be Timothy or Philip or Silas. You're just called to join with all of us and glory in the name of Christ publicly before the world. We'll close with a helpful word from Charles Spurgeon when preaching on this passage. Quote, Christ descended into the lowest parts of the earth and thereby he laid the foundations of the great temple of God's praise. He continued in his life laboring and thereby he built the walls of his temple. He ascended to his throne and therein he laid the top stone amidst shoutings. (laughs) What remained then? It remained to furnish it with inhabitants. And the inhabitants with all things necessary for their comfort and perfection. Christ ascended on high that he might do that. In that sense, the gift of the Spirit fills all things. Bringing in the chosen and furnishing all that is necessary for their complete salvation. The blessings which come to us through the ascension are for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Your risen, ascended, reigning Lord hasn't left you with an empty apartment room. He has provided the furnishings. His word is proclaimed week in and week out all across this globe. People see that word in sacramental signs. And then hearers of that word, Monday through Saturday, walk among the community of faith and out in the world and they speak of Christ. Your Christ hasn't left you with an unfurnished temple.
Brothers and sisters, there are wonderful realities to this passage. Let us meditate on them and consider the glorious gifts of our Savior. Let's pray. Living God, we pray that you would help us. Help us to glory in the reign of Christ even now and the fact that he has given all of us gifts and he has given us the apostles, prophets, and evangelists, and pastors, and teachers that through them continually the word may come that we may be empowered to speak the truth in love and walk worthy of the calling to which you've called us. Help us to be full of praise for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.